Thanks for joining us on the Crenshaw Christian Center New York podcast. And remember these words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's jump into the lesson. Uh, Let me say this. I was greeted this morning by a lot of individuals asking me, what was the highlight of the cruise that we just returned from? It was very easy for me. The highlight of this cruise was not Bermuda, Puerto Rico, St. Martin, or uh, whatever the other place we went, Labrador in in, in Haiti. The highlight of this cruise was the two teachings done by Pastor Fred Price, Jr. He did such dynamic teachings, and he taught on faith, which he has not taught a lot on because he says nobody can teach this better than his dad. But in honor of his dad, who did not make the cruise, he taught on faith. He taught on the prayer of faith and the law of faith. Outstanding. And I mention that because some of the scriptures that he covered on the cruise in those two messages are in this message today. Now, this message was written before the cruise, but I indicate that to show you two things. Well, three things. First one is that there's only one Holy Spirit. The second thing is that scriptures can be used to teach different themes and different subjects in the Bible. Same scripture, depending on where. So it's not just one topic that a scripture supports. It supports many scriptures. He taught on faith in the scriptures absolutely supported what he was talking about. I'm teaching on another topic today, and you'll see that they support that as well. The third thing that I want to mention to you is this, and this is true for me, and it may be true for some of you. And I mention this especially for those of you who took the cruise and who are here this morning, and I see that a number of you are not here this morning. (laughs) If you're listening in by Periscope or whatever means uh, that when you hear a scripture, consecutively, back to back. That's a good indication that that scripture is for you. When you hear it three times back to back, then you know it's for you for sure. That's been the case for me. Uh, When a scripture is for me, I may hear it, I may hear Pastor Price or Apostle Price teach it, and then that very same morning, that scripture will come to me again, either in another message or in something I'm reading. And then even a third time, that's verification to me that that's a scripture for me. So I want you to listen as you listen today for those scriptures that you all took copious notes on on the cruise and and, and see if they apply to you. Now our topic, well let me just start from the beginning. You can read along with me. Uh, There's little doubt as I say here that we live in an increasingly complex world. Everyday life presents a multitude of real opportunities, obligations, and obstacles for the individual that make it imperative that you take charge of your life. And that is our subject today, take charge of your life. If you don't take charge, you can become buried under an avalanche of issues and cares and vexations that seem to never cease. And one of my favorite writers, Ralph Waldo Anderson, put it this way, things are in the saddle and ride mankind. Things are in the saddle and ride mankind. But before you can really take charge of your life, you have to take charge of the things in your life that have charge over you. The things in the saddle that may be riding you. As a Christian believer, you need to remember this always. You have dominion with all things set under your feet. So nothing should be riding you. Everything is under your feet. Now, in taking charge of your life, The first thing you have to realize, and this is something that seems obvious, but maybe you don't grasp, it is whose life? It's your life. Possessive, it's your life. And I emphasize that because uh, so many people go through life not realizing that their life should be managed just like we are called upon to manage other things that we possess. And I'll mention a few of those later. In terms of our human makeup, though, here are some examples from Scripture where we are instructed to manage components of that human makeup because these components are ours to manage. Very familiar scriptures to Romans 12.1. We find this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present what? Your bodies, 
a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That's your reasonable spiritual service uh, to God. Romans 12, 2, the very next verse. And you know this by heart. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of whose mind? Your mind. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And in Luke 21, 19, Aren't you glad you don't have to turn to these? You are informed that by your patience, by your endurance, by your persistence, by your holding on and never giving up, possess whose soul? Your soul. Now in each of these examples you can see that you are not your body, you have a body. That you are not your mind, but you have a mind. And you are not your soul, but you have a soul. And the you that has or possesses these three has the ability to manage and control them. That is why you are directed to present your body, renew your mind, possess your soul, because you own or possess these three. It is the same, and this is how simple it is, very next statement, it's the same as being asked to drive your car, put your clothes on or in the closet, make your bed, discipline your child, or open your Bible which you don't have to do today. In the same manner as listed above, I am telling you today to take charge of your life. Now it's important to know this next point. The locus of control is always in you. The locus of control is in you. It resides in you. Things may happen to you, and they do. And things may happen around you, and they do. But because the locus of control is in you, you don't have to let them happen in you. That's what you have control. You're in control, and if the things are in the saddle riding you, then maybe you need to change horses or change saddles. But you have to do it. Remember, nothing should be riding you since all things have been put under your feet. Look at this familiar passage that tells us this, that Psalm chapter 8 Verses 3 through 6. And you can read along with me quietly. I'm going to read it out loud, of course. In verse 3, that's Psalm for those listening in. It's Psalm 8, verse 3 through 6. Verse 3 says this. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, talking about God, of course, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 6, all important, but verse 6 is key. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now what's left out of all? All is all. There is nothing that's not under your feet. And if it's not under your feet, it's because you've lifted up your feet or you're not exercising your dominion. Now here in verse 6 of Psalm 8, we clearly see that God has put all things under our feet. And nothing, meaning no thing, is left out. How many of you believe verse 6? Let me see a, a, a show of hands. That's essentially everybody. Now you don't have to answer this next one. Let me ask you this. How many of you have things that may be riding you, controlling you, or seriously impairing you, impairing as in holding you back? or disrupting your life. You don't have to raise your hands because most of us have something that fits into that category. If you really believe verse 6, and I think you do, then why is anyone under the foot of anything? Now the answer is found in the same source where we get Psalm 8. Where do we get Psalm 8? We get it from the Bible. <laughs> so the answer is also found in the Bible, and this is one of the scriptures that uh, Pastor Price talked on uh, in his messages aboard ship. And that source is the Bible. Jesus gives us the answer in Matthew 17, 20. Now, a little background. This is the story of the boy who was healed of epilepsy. But I, I want to take you back to Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, because you need to know this in terms of background. And, and Pastor Price did this uh, a few days ago. And when he, he being Jesus, had called his disciples, the 12 disciples, to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out 
and they healed all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. And when you follow that story from Matthew 10, verse 1, you will see that the disciples actually did go out and they encountered sick people and they did heal people and they did cast out demons. But they were not successful in casting out the demon from the boy uh, when his father brought the child to them. So the father brought the boy to Jesus. But let me interject something here, which I don't state here. When you read the scripture, the father brought the boy to Jesus and said, I took him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Very important to understand this, and Pastor Fred made this clear the other day. The father is actually misstating that. He should have said they did not heal him because based on Matthew 10, 1, he had given them power to do it. So they could have healed him. So it's incorrect to say that they could not heal him. They did not heal him. And the question is, why did they not heal him? Uh, and we find the answer. First of all, they, uh, they brought, the father brought the boy to Jesus, and Jesus rebuked the demon and cured the son. And he had some other sharp things to say about the disciples. You can read that when you look this up on your own. But he gives us the answer in Matthew 17, 19. It's actually 17, 20, but in 17, 19, we find that the disciples came to him privately on the side and said to Jesus, why could we not cast it out? And in Matthew 17, 20, Jesus answered them and said, because of your unbelief. See, the lesson here from Jesus is that you can have great belief, great faith, even coupled with power. But if there is any doubt or unbelief, the doubt and unbelief will cancel out your belief. This is a situation with many Christians. You genuinely believe, uh, Psalm 8, verse 6, that all things are under your feet. But when it comes to a particular problem that they have, they are not sure, quote, it will work. You hear people say that all the time. I don't think it'll work on this. And they'll say, but you don't understand. This is different. This is not a headache. This is cancer. Or I've done so many bad things that I just don't see how this could apply to me. There are all kinds of things that, that come to mind that have doubt and unbelief moving into the mind that cancels out your faith and your belief. So doubt and unbelief are the first things that you have to get control of if you are to take charge of your life. So let's talk about this a little bit uh, and, 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 and really enjoy the victory that has been made possible through Christ Jesus. Psalm 8, Psalm 8, 6 says this, again, all things have been put under our feet. By his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus seals the reality of Psalm 8, 6. Any doubt or any belief, however, on your part will cancel out or severely weaken the effect of this all-encompassing victory that Jesus has already won for us. Now, on the issue of unbelief, the word makes it clear that it will cancel out spiritual benefits. I don't have all the scriptures here, but I do want to take you to this one where it's even called an evil. The bottom of the page, page three, Hebrews 3.12 says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of what? Unbelief. In departing from the living God. See, unbelief comes in when you depart from the living God. But let me underscore this next sentence to you. You depart from a living God when you depart from his living word. In other words, what does the word say? By his stripes you are healed. And on and on and on. When you depart from that living word, that's evil, and that opens you up to all kinds of ill. Now, we see the effect of unbelief in what happened when Jesus returned to his town uh, of birth. That was Nazareth. And you're familiar with this story. He returned to his hometown and, and began teaching in the local synagogue. The local people began asking, where did this man get such wisdom in these mighty works? They said, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And we know his brothers and sisters here in town. So in Matthew chapter 13, verse 57, if you're following along with me, we find this. So they, meaning his hometown folks, were offended at him. In other words, they're saying, what nerve he has claiming that he can do these things and claiming that he knows these things and so forth. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. And in Matthew 13, 56, this is what I want you to underscore, Matthew 13, 50, 
58, I'm sorry, 1358, it records this. Now he did not do many mighty works there, meaning in his hometown. Why? Because of their unbelief. Unbelief is a thief of your faith and it's a robber from you of the things of God. Now we also know this from the story of the Jews who rebelled against Moses after being led out of captivity out of Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, that initial group, and did not enter into the promised land, even though the promised land we discover later in looking at the map was only about a month's travel from where they were. Why did they not enter into the promised land? We find the answer, and in, 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 in the best one, instead of going back to the, the Old Testament, I'm taking you to Hebrews 3.19. Spells it out very succinctly. Tells us this, Hebrews 3.19, and you can read it right there with me. So we see that they could not enter in, meaning enter into the promised land. Why? Because of unbelief. While they were out there, remember when Moses went back up to the mountain and they developed the, the, the gold calf and so forth and they started worshiping idols and so they entered into unbelief. So they did not enter the promised land. And God, in fact, God told them that you're not. He said in so many words, you're going to have to die out before, before anybody from this group enters into the, the promised land. They missed out on the, promise of, on the promised land because of their unbelief. You may be missing out on many of the promises of God that rightly belong to you as a saved and blood-bought Christian because of your doubt and unbelief. For our sake, Jesus also dealt with the issue of doubt. And I have two familiar scriptures here, uh, and uh, Pastor Fred uh, dealt with these also. In Matthew 21, 21, we find this. This is Jesus speaking. How do we know it's Jesus speaking? Okay, I made sure I put it in red so you know he's talking. He starts by saying, assuredly, and those of you who are on the cruise, remember Apostle Price said, when you see assuredly, you should take notice, because assuredly means without a doubt, without fail, there's no question about it. I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what we have, what was done to the fig tree, remember he caused the fig tree to wither up and die and said no one will eat uh, fruit from you ever again. That was a fig tree that he had gone up to before and was looking for figs to eat and all, all he found was leaves, no figs. So he said, you won't ever yield any figs for anybody to eat after this. And so when they were coming back and passed the tree, the disciples saw that the tree had withered and had pretty much faded away. And they called Jesus, you know, Jesus, as Pastor Price illustrated this, he, Jesus didn't even pay any attention to the tree. They did, and they called his attention to it. But anyway, he says, you will not only be able to do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, if you do what? Say to this mountain, not think it, not hope it, be removed and be cast in the sea, it will be done. Now, mountain here could be translated as figuratively. It could be a mountain of debt. It could be a mountain of, of, of illness or sickness challenging you. It could be a mountain of ill will. It could be a mountain of bad family relationships. Whatever that mountain is, if you say to that mountain and hold fast to your faith and belief and say, be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. Now, the second passage is also very familiar and very similar to that one. This is in Mark eleven twenty three. Jesus is speaking again. He says, for assuredly, again, he says, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. I added this one because it emphasizes the importance of saying. You see says in there how many times? Three times. You only have doubt mentioned, I think, uh, maybe once. Very important that you speak it, say it. Now another familiar scripture, turning on page five at the top of the page, and, 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 and Pastor Fred also took us to this one on the cruise. We often quote James chapter one, verse five, which says this, if any man or if any of you lack, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally, he gives to all who ask and without reproach, and it will be given to him. All you have to do is ask for wisdom. But most often we leave out the condition given in James chapter one, verses six and eight, the next two scriptures. And I have them down here for you to follow along with me. 
in 6 it says, but let him ask in faith. In other words, the person who's asking for wisdom, let him ask in faith with no, what? Doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not any man, or let not that man, suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Not in just this way, but in all his ways. Doubt and unbelief are major barriers that prevent the Christian from taking charge of his life and from operating in the full promises of God's word. You need to stand guard to the portals of your mind. The portals are the doors to your mind. And when you doubt, or when doubt or unbelief try to enter, you are ready with the word of God to block their entry, just as Jesus was when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, which we see recorded in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. We're not going to go there. I've taught this several times in the last uh, what, uh, 10 months or so, and we've gone over it scripture by scripture, but you remember the story. As he's tempted by the devil to do something, he rebukes the devil and fends him off and sends him packing by quoting the word. He says, it was written, or it is written, and you know, that man shall not live, man shall live, shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, and so, and so forth, and so on. But you can go back there, you can, under, you can circle that Luke 4, 113 as something you should go back and review. Uh, Apostle Christ always tells us this, if you doubt anything, doubt your doubts. If you don't control your doubts and your unbelief, you will be seriously hindered in any effort to take charge of your life. Now, closely allied with doubts and unbelief are worry and fear. And you would be amazed at how many people are dominated by worry and fear. I mean, I'm amazed that some people can get through life because they're fearful of going outside. They're fearful of taking a step on the step. I may fall. Somebody may rob me. They're fearful of taking a cab because the cab might get into an accident. They're fearful of the rain because I might get wet. There's nothing too trivial for the fearful person to be fearful of. So you'd be amazed at the number of people. I mean, there's, a, there's a, a symptom called agoraphobia. That's fear of going outside. People are, there are actually people who are stuck inside because they're afraid to go outside and so forth. Anyway, a lot of people are captive to their worries and fears. But you have to take charge of these two as well if you want to take charge of your life. Now, in Matthew chapter 6, 25, verses 25 through 30, Matthew 6, 25, 30, for those who are listening in, Jesus deals with worry. And he says this, chapter 25, and Pastor Price went over this as well on the ship. He said, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? 26, look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. In other words, they don't gather grains into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them are you not more valuable than they? In other words, he's saying, are you, aren't you more valuable than the birds of the air? 27, which of you worrying can add one cubit to his statue? And as Pastor Fred says, we don't use cubits anymore, so you can say, who can add one inch to his statue by worrying? 28, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor do they spin. Verse 29, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today and tomorrow is cast into the oven, will he not so much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Verse 27 asks the question, which of you worrying can add one inch to his stature? When you think about it, what good can come, uh, can worrying add to anything? And I list a couple of things that worrying can do. It can certainly create or add to an ulcerated stomach. It can add gray hair. It can make hair thinner. But it can't change anything in a positive way about the concern, the problem, or the health challenge being faced. Now, I always like to go back to the origin of words because it helps us to understand them. 
The derivation of the word worry is from the Anglo-Saxon word virgon, W-R-Y-G-O-N. The W is spelled as a V, virgon, which means to strangle. So when you worry, you're actually doing this. You're choking yourself. You're choking out or choking off the life that flows into your body. You are actually strangling yourself. So when you add that to situations, you are getting yourself in a strangulation position in terms of the problems that confronting you. So when you worry, you're actually strangling yourself, cutting off the needed oxygen and threatening your health. Worry is actually a sin, by the way, because you are denying the word of God. So you compound whatever problem exists by adding the sin of worry to that mix. See what Philippians 4, 6, 7 says, and Pastor Price took us to this one as well. It says, be anxious for nothing, which simply means don't worry about anything. But in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And seven, this is Philippians 4, 6, and 7. This is seven. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Just make your requests known to God and rest in faith that he will give you what you request. If you ask according to, finish the sentence, which is his will. In other words, you ask anything that's consistent with what's in the word, in this word in the Bible, he will grant it. And I mention this in particular because if it has to do with, say, an illness, you know what the word says about illness. You know what the word says about finances. We're going to come to that later. And so on. So, continuing on, like worry, fear will block your faith and belief. In fact, and you need to fully understand this, you cannot operate in fear and faith at the same time. They're opposites in that sense. Faith accepts the word of God. Fear accepts the word of Satan. And remember, you should treat fear like it is an acronym. And you know what an acronym is. Acronym is a word formed from the first or first couple of letters of a series of words to form that acronym. NATO, all of you know what NATO is. It's been in the news a lot lately. NATO is an example of an acronym. It comes from North Atlantic Treaty Organization. That's what NATO is. Another acronym is RADAR. You may not know that RADAR comes from radio detecting and ranging. That's where they get the term radar. It's an acronym. So fear can be said to come from false evidences appearing real. F-E-A-R. False evidences appearing real. In other words, fear is a phantom. It does not reflect reality. Love and God's word reflect reality and the real truth about the situation. Page seven. And there's so many in the Bible. I just give you a few of the antidotes, the things that combat fear. Psalm 27.1, and you can add to, there's so many. Psalm 27.1 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 23.4, you know this one by heart. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 56.23, that Psalm 56, 23 says, whenever I am afraid, I will trust you. Trust you, God. Romans 8, 31 says this. What then shall we say to these things, whatever they are? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8, 37 says, yet in all these things, whatever they are, how many there may be, we are more than conquerors. We are already more than conquerors through him who loved us. And the last one here uh, in this list is 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Look at these. Look up others that deal with fear and you will get some answers to uh, that you may need when fear attempts to creep into your life. Now, if worry strangles, then fear paralyzes. They both cloud good vision, they hinder sound thinking, and they immobilize right action. In fact, 
They may just immobilize you completely where you can't even move. So if you want to take charge of your life and end strangulation and paralysis in your daily affairs, you must take charge of and repel fear and worry as soon as they raise their ugly heads. You can't allow them to take any kind of hold. And what gives them hold is your thinking about them, your reflecting on them, and obviously your speaking about them. You have to nip it in the bud right away. Now the next challenge to taking charge of one's life faced by many Christians is in the area of health. I consider health one of the most critical areas for the Christian because when you think about our rights, and health is one of our salvation benefits, how many of us are plagued with ills of all kinds. Uh, sickness and disease are a main weapon used by Satan to attack Christians. But let me make clear what I mean here, and you have it written down there. Satan cannot put illness on anyone, but once attacked, he uses the worry, fear, and doubt as weapons to weaken one's faith in the healing that has already been provided for us in Christ Jesus. Using thoughts, ideas, and suggestions, you've heard this from Apostle Price, flowing through the mind, Satan poses questions as he did to Jesus in the wilderness. In that scripture that I refer to you, that's Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, and the devil raises questions. If thou be the Son of God, remember this? Satan will ask you questions like this. Do you really believe you can beat this cancer? After all, your mother and her mother died from the same thing, didn't they? And you hear this from so many people. <laughs> Unfortunately, I've heard people put it this way. I expected by 46 that I would have cancer because it, my mother got it about the same age and her mother got it about the same age. Do you know that, actually, you know who told us this Early in Job, he says, that I fear has come upon me. If you greatly fear that cancer is going to come upon you by age 46, guess what? Because fearing that and worrying about it and expecting it, that's like praying without ceasing for it to happen. So, so that, that, that's what happened with so many people. He uses these thoughts, ideas, and suggestions flowing through the mind by posing these questions. Now you have to take charge and say, and I did this in uh, the healing class I taught in discipleship training, you have, you have to take a stand. If this has been part of your family's history, you have to say that generational curses and illnesses stop here. They stop with me. I'm a child of God, one with healing light, and by his stripes I am healed. They will not go past me and I will not pass them down to anyone else in my family. You actually have a responsibility, knowing what you know about the, what the word promises and guarantees you. If you see that running in your family, and especially if it comes your way, but if it comes to anybody in your family, you need to step up and block that and end it right there and not have it come back two or three generations down the bit. You have the power to stop it. You say it ends with me. Like Jesus did in the temptations in the wilderness that I mentioned to you in chapter 4 uh, verses 1 through 13 of Luke. You take control by knowing and using the word of God. Now here are some key words to use against the enemy when sickness and disease attack. You already know these. I'm going to read these very quickly. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. That's past tense. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, who himself, meaning Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on a tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. You are healed, you were healed. The only left thing left out is you is healed. So with those three, you're covered, okay? Romans 8, 11. Romans 8, 11. But if the spirit of him, and really understand Romans 8, 11, and I'll say a little bit more about it. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Through all the teachings we've done recently, you know that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. The spirit of God dwells in you. 
So that's the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. He can certainly raise you from your bed of illness and so forth. Psalm 107.20, another familiar scripture. He sent his word and healed them. You can put your, yourself there. Heal me and deliver them. Heal me from there. Put, your, put my there. Destructions. Psalm 103.23. We love to sing this one, but how many take it truly to heart? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all our iniquities, our sins, who heals all your or heals all my diseases. And finally, Proverbs 4.20, this is final for the day. Proverbs 4.20, 22. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 to 22. Very familiar to you. We've we used it so many times in recent months. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them, uh, keep them in the midst of your heart. Why? For they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Here, health literally means medicine to all their flesh. And you've heard this time and time again. Now, there are two things we see in Proverbs 4.20, 20 above, uh, 4.20, 22, uh, that we just read above. It says, those who find them implies two things. One, that you have to look for the scriptures. In other words, you have to search the scriptures, study the scriptures, Come to Bible study, come to Sunday, Sunday morning service, and be taught scriptures that you may not know. Uh, you have to search the scriptures and rightly divide the words, meaning rightly understand them and break them down, and uh, and to, uh, for you to find uh, to find to support health. The, and find I'm sorry, and you find the words that support health, and there's so many in in the Bible. And number two. The words are life and health, which normally means medicine. Those are two things you take away from it. That you've got to search for these scriptures, and then when you find them, they are life and medicine to your health. Now, what do you do with medicine normally? Normally, you take it. So, in Jeremiah 15, 16, I always take people to this whenever I quote Proverbs 4, uh, 21, 22. Jeremiah says this, your words were found and I ate them. You have to take the words of health, digest them, and let them settle into your system, in your heart and mind. Then you can speak these words of truth to your life, to the situation that's challenging you. And let me continue. Well, I'll say it here. The important thing about the words in the Bible, this is God's will, this is God's word, this is God's will for us. And the scriptures tell us that God confirms his word. Now, when you speak his word back to him, he is duty bound to confirm that word. Very important, very important. Now, in addition to using the word to combat health issues, here are things in the natural you should be doing all the time. We always read that uh, God says that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, and that's knowledge of his word. But you need to have knowledge of the world as well. And here are just four practical things that I list here that you need to do with respect to health. Number one, get regular medical checkups. You need to find that situation in its beginning stage and not wait until you can barely move and it's in stage four and only a miracle will save you. You don't want to get to a point where only a miracle can save you. Why? And you've heard me teach this before. You're not guaranteed a miracle. A miracle is not part of your salvation package. Miracles, what was that phrase I came up with when I talked at Pastor Landry's that came to me? Miracles operate at the speed and command of God, not at the need and demand of man. That's the one thing you can quote me for. That's, that's, that, that, that's something that the Holy Spirit gave to me at the time I was preparing notes to speak at uh, Pastor Landry's uh, memorial. You're not guaranteed a miracle, so you don't want the situation to get to a point where only a miracle will save you. So women know the tests they should get, such as mammogram, pap smears, and so on. Men should get PSA tests and other blood workup. Men are notorious about this, and every time I have a chance to speak on on health or speak to men individually or in small groups, I remind them to get your test, get your blood workup. That's how they can find cancer. They cannot find cancer 
looking through the iris of your eye or looking under the sole of your feet or something else. And I'm not mocking these because they're things that can be termed that way, but not cancer. Uh, you may get some signs in your eye that indicate that there's something wrong. Only the blood work will tell you that you really have cancer. Get proper rest. Number two. Three, watch your diet. Watch what you eat. Now, when I say watch your diet and watch what you eat, I don't mean watch it as you're eating. I mean watch what you choose to eat. A lot of you could probably say, right, I always watch what I eat. <laughs> Drink plenty of fresh water. Water is absolutely imperative. Do you know that you could go for days without food, but you can't go for beyond a certain number of days without water? Water is very important. We can't expect God, this is what I want you to underscore, you can't expect God to heal your body if you continually abuse and misuse the body. Now let's turn to another critical area that you have to get control of if you are ever to take control of your life, and that's finances. It's another key area that has to be under your control. The word prescribes a process or system. Oh, before I leave the issue of health, let me just, and you write the scripture down. This is uh, Matthew 16, 19. Write Matthew 16, 19. And I'm going to relate it to, to health, but it, it relates to any issue. If you know this, if you can remember the scripture, it, it talks about the fact that Jesus says, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So when it comes to an illness uh, in your body or some other disorder, you can bind that. In addition to standing on the healing scriptures and so forth that are throughout the word, you can bind that illness and render it null and void and command it to leave your body. Because if you bind it on earth, speak it, it's bound in heaven. And at the same time, or in the next breath, you can loose the healing power of the blood and the restorative restoration power of the blood and so forth. Whatever's loose on earth will be loose in heaven. You can loose the healing forces in your body or you can, and you can bind the things that are plaguing your body. I, did, I, I wanted to just mention that to you. Now, in terms of finances, the word prescribes a process or system for handling financial growth. Initially, it's set out in Genesis 8.22. This is a familiar scripture. It says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest shall not cease. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest shall not cease. As far as I can see, as far as you can see, the earth still remains. So this is the law of planting and reaping that operates today, that operates in the kingdom. And if you're on the ship, you understand from Pastor Fred that we are in the kingdom. We're here on earth, but we're also in, in uh, God's kingdom. Seed must be sown. There must be time for the seed to germinate and grow, and then comes the harvest. Seed, time, harvest. There is a time process. Some people give on Sunday and they expect to have everything they need on Monday. By the way, that can happen. It could happen Sunday afternoon. But there is going to be some time because that's the way it operates. Now, the reality of sowing and reaping is picked up in 2 Corinthians 9, chapter 9, verses 6 to 8. All of us know this scripture. Verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 9. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Seven, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things, that you may have an abundance for every good work. Well, you know that the word tells us that God predestined us for good. And this scripture assures us, this scripture assures us that if we give, we will have an abundance of resources for every good work that we do. Let's look at another familiar scripture, Malachi chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. God tells us to put him to the test here in terms of our giving. It also says that he will rebuke the devourer for our sake. That is, he will do battle for and fight on our behalf to protect us. This is the scripture, Malachi chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Malachi 3, verses 10 and 11. It says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse and try me in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. 
verse 11, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground. He won't destroy what you're doing. He won't destroy your family. He won't destroy your job or your business and so forth. Now, you should pay, a close, you should pay close attention to these, three, these several things in Malachi. And they're right here. I'll list them right here. First of all, the test God offers here to prove him. If God ever gives you a test to prove him, you should take him up on it. Two, the winners of heaven blessing that come if we put him to the test. And three, the fact that he will do battle for us to protect, to protect you, to protect us and your work efforts. That's it's what you set your hand to. That could be a business, it could be a job, and so on. He will protect that. Now, Luke 6.38, another familiar scripture, further expounds on this message from Malachi. In Luke 6.38, Jesus says this, Give, and it will be given to you. How? Good measure. Press down, shaken together, and run over. And I, I, don't, I don't like the fact that they take out this. Where men where, over will be put into your bosom. I put in parentheses by men. In other words, some human is going to give this to you. It's not going to fall from the sky. It's not going to materialize, you know, uh, you know, as you're dreaming at night and you wake up and there's a pot of gold there. Someone is going to be directed to bring it to you. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. You're giving determines your receiving. If you're faced with a financial crisis, remember Philippians 4.19, which says this, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, let me back up with this a little bit because we say that receiving is dependent on giving. Look at what the scripture says. This is a, 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 we did a, a lesson on studying the Bible, and you may not remember this one. And is what in terms of English? It's a conjunction. What, a, what does a conjunction do? It combines two clauses, two statements, two expressions of thought, two expressions of, of whatever, but it's combining two things. So if it starts with and, if 19 starts with and, then you need to go before and see what that's connecting to. In order to understand how Philippians 4.19 uh, operates, you have to read 18, 17, 16, and go back probably as far as Philippians 4.13 or read the whole chapter. What Paul is responding to here is this. He's talking about the work of the ministry and the fact that the ministry has needs. That's why we have tithes and offering and giving. The ministry has to be supported. And he's talking about the fact that the Philippians were the best in terms of supporting him, sending him support, whatever he needed, financial things that he needed. And he mentions that, he says, even when I was in Thessalonica, that was with those Thessalonians, you, Philippians, sent me what I needed. So he's talking about this. He's talking about need here, and he's talking about how good they were at giving. He's talking about meeting needs and receiving the help that you need. So after he describes their giving, then he says, and my God shall supply all your need according to your living. He could have said this and have made it clear. He said, and based on your history of giving, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory. So for those of you who run around quoting Philippians 4.19, but you're not giving anything, it's not going to work for you. Okay? So you need to understand this. You don't always have this explained. But you, whenever you see and, you need to see what came before and. I figured I'd better step up my teaching. Pastor Fred was so good. I'm going to give you some more amplified teaching. He is an inspiration. That's my nephew. And he is a teacher unequal, in my opinion, by almost any teacher out there. He is outstanding, so forth. So Philippians 4.19. You can stand on Philippians 4.19 if you've done what you need to do ahead of time and literally declare that I am abundantly supplied and all my needs are met. Now, I told you the story that Apostle Price began doing this, but he began doing this after he began tithing and establishing a history of tithing. He would go around the house audibly saying this, I am rich, I am rich, and all my needs are met. I have no needs. And uh, the girls were young then. It was only the two of them, Angela and Cheryl, and they thought 
to themselves probably that he was a little cuckoo because looking at their circumstances, they were certainly not rich and they certainly didn't have everything they needed. He continued to tithe and verbally confess this and guess what? It came to pass. Always remember Proverbs 18.21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Speak life over your life, over your health, over your finances. Top of page 11. And never, forget, and never forget, in terms of giving, what the purpose of prosperity is. A lot of people attack the prosperity gospel because many of the pastors don't really explain what the purpose of prosperity is. And we're told this in Deuteronomy 8.18, and I give you just part of it here. Deuteronomy 8.18, and you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is today. We are to use a portion of the wealth we accumulate uh, in the discipleship mission of seeking to save the lost. Seeking and saving the lost is establishing his covenant. Remember what Pastor Fred said? The two things that Jesus came for? One was salvation. The second was, was to seek and save the lost. If we are providing support, mission support, church support, in the effort to seek and save the lost, we are helping the Father to fulfill this covenant. Very important. Now, here are some practical things you need to do about your finances. And I like to include natural things that you need to do. If you're in debt, that's number one, stop spending. That's what Apostle Price and Dr. Betty did. Cut off the credit card usage. That's what they did. Starting with the debts that you, that you find manageable, meaning the smaller ones, Pay them off one by one. Number two, if your debts are huge and beyond your management, seek professional debt management help. Seek help in finding a legitimate debt management service. There are a lot of unscrupulous people out there in the field. They'll ask you to give them $4,000 to help you uh, manage $16,000 in debt. That makes no sense. Don't do that. Three, watch your pennies. This is, this is one that I have. Watch your pennies. If you watch your pennies, the dollars will take care of themselves. At the end of each day, and, and, and watch your pennies is allied with this one, at the end of each day, you should be able to account for every dollar you spent that day. If you started the day with $75 in your pocket and you end up with $8 at the end of the day, you should know where every one of the $67 went. That's keeping control of your money. Your expenditures on credit cards should also be included in this daily watch. Some people think that because it's on a credit card that it's not real. <laughs> you know it's real when you get that bill. Five, if something out there sounds too good to be true, it probably is. You should pass it up. Six, if you have a tax refund during tax season, don't view it as extra money to spend. Use it to pay off something or put it in the bank. Number seven on top of page 12, if you are now saving, if you're not now saving, start saving. Start with $10 out of every $100 you make. Start with five if that's all you can do. But make it something every week. And at even the next one is at any given time, you should have put away in savings at least this, enough to cover six months of your expenses, your rent, your food, and all your other daily expenditures. You should have that much put away because you never know when your supervisor is going to walk into your office and say, you know what, you know that we're going through downsizing and guess what, you're part of the list. And as of that day, which is usually a Friday, you don't have any income after that day. That can happen literally overnight. So you have to have some provision for a rainy day or rainy months. Now, let me talk about this last area and it'll take a few minutes so I may go over a little bit, but you guys don't mind, do you? Uh, one final area that you have to take control of if you want to take charge of your life, and that's the control of self. Self-control. If you really want to take charge of your life, you must really exercise self-control. Now, let's look at a few verses. There are many in the Bible. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 and 7, we're told this. But also for this reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control. To self-control, perseverance, that's endurance. To perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly love. And to brotherly, brotherly I mean, I'm sorry, not brotherly love, but brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. 
if you master and put into practice the things just outlined, you would have achieved the degree of self-control and self-mastery that would enable you to really begin to take charge of your life. In fact, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 10, it says this, for if you do these things, the things I just outlined that you see there, uh, you will never stumble. It doesn't say that you won't ever fall. It says you won't even stumble if you do these things. It would mean that you are in firm control of your life. Galatians 5, 22, 23 echoes this point. You know that Galatians 5, 22 talks about the fruit of the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit, joy, peace, patience, kindness, godliness, I mean goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Self-control is really controlling oneself. And here are three areas that you need to take charge of in controlling yourself. First, control of the tongue. This is control of your tongue. Since death and life are in the power of the tongue, Proverbs 18, 21, you want to be sure that you are speaking life to your situation all the time and not death. Proverbs 6, 2 reminds us that you are snared, meaning you are trapped by the words of your mouth. And as we say in law, what you say can and will be used against you in the court of life and perhaps in a court of law if it comes to that. Here are some reasons you need to control your tongue. Proverbs 29, 11. 29, 11 Proverbs. A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back, his temper. Proverbs 21, 23. He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from, tr from troubles. Psalm 143, 3. You're asking the Lord to do this. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. But you need to set that guard over your mouth, as I said earlier. You need a guard not only against the quality of what you say, but the quantity of what you say. Some people simply talk too much. As one writer put it, if you talk long enough, even a saint will end up saying something wrong. The second thing, after controlling your tongue, you have to control your body. Bodily appetites and what we call sins of the body must be brought under your control. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 27, Apostle Paul tells us this, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Remember, the you that has a body has the ability to control the body because it is your body. Just as you discipline your child, you have to discipline your body. Let's look at a few other areas where discipline is needed. Now, I don't know if this is not being recorded or not, Go ahead, keep talking. Okay, we have, a, we have a few more pages to finish. I want to go over them with you. You can take them and finish it yourself, but I want to finish them with you. Now, just as you discipline your child, you have to discipline your body. Let's look at a few areas where discipline is needed. Case of smoking, really a bad habit, and one that's injurious to health. And I like to use this example that I, that I use. You need to take that cigarette, hold it up and look at it and say, look, I'm smoking you. You're not smoking me. If the cigarette is smoking you, then it's hopeless. It has control of you, but you have control. You take, first of all, you buy the pack, you take it out of the pack, you light it up, you're smoking it, it's not smoking you. You have to talk to it that way. Same thing with drinking. Take that drink of liquor and say, look, I'm drinking you. You're not drinking me. You have control. Eating, same thing. What overeating? as most of us did on the cruise. <laughs> that extra pie, piece of pie, did not jump off the plate and fly into your mouth to eat, to eat you. You're eating it, you have control. And here's something, that people have issues with all kinds of things. You control reading pornography and engaging in any illicit sexual activity in, the much, in much the same way. These are my examples. A pornographic magazine did not buy itself and jump into your briefcase and come home with you. And you are not just innocently walking by Motel 6 on the other side of town and some invisible force grabbed you and snatched you into room 12. Any such actions had to be pre-planned. What I'm telling you is that use the same mind that laid out the plan to block the plan. As Paul says, you discipline your body and keep it in subjection. Discipline starts with the mind. Now, let me say this. I know that all these things I just outlined are not always that easy to control. When real addictions are involved, 
they may, there may be a need for professional care and intervention. But it's important to establish this fact that the center of control is in you and it is you who has to decide the course of action you will follow. Unless you make the choice in your own mind to quit, no amount of intervention will do the job uh, completely. You have to decide. Third is to take control of the sins of the disposition. We just talked about the sins of the body. The church loves to talk about the sins of the body. It doesn't spend enough time talking about this, what I call the sins of the disposition. Uh, in Pro Proverbs 6, 16, 19, Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, we have a list of dispositional things the Lord hates. 16 reads this. These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look. This is arrogance on parade. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift in running to evil. A false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord, discord among the brethren. Here are some additional sins of the disposition that I have seen in operation during my 60 years in the church. You go down the list with me. I strain, that's meism. This is a person who has to be at the center of everything or in control of everything. This is the disease of me. People who are rude and disrespectful of others. Three, people who do not know how to talk to others in a civil, compassionate manner. The next one, people who demean others and talk about others who seemingly have little in a material way. People come dressed a certain way and so forth. And we, some people turn their nose down on them and talk about them. There are people who gossip and talk about others. People who cannot receive constructive criticism. People who always have to be right. People who are hypocrites. They talk about acting and walking in love, but their actions, interactions, and conversations with people reveal a totally different character. And finally, people who have a touchy disposition who are easily offended. You say, you know what? The bathroom was over there. What are you telling me that for? You know, there's some people who are just that touchy. As I said, I'm talking about individuals in the church where you might least expect to see such behavior. I am not talking about people in the world where I worked for 40 years in a corporate environment. We all know someone who is guilty of one or more of these seven things that the Lord hates or someone who exhibits conduct and behavior matching the people I just described. Sometimes you know them as clear as your image. The question is, can you admit to and deal with any of these qualities you might be expressing? If you have a challenge in any of these areas of self-control I just outlined, you must take charge of these areas. Otherwise, you will not be able to take fully charge of your life. Why? Because there will still be major negative things controlling or influencing you. Things riding you. In addition, I'm sorry, the addiction or conduct may be in the body, but again, the battle is won first in the mind. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.17 reminds us that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. A sound mind is simply a right thinking mind, a mind that is thinking correctly. Uh, in Philippians 2.5, we're told, let that mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. We know that that is possible because we're told in 1 Corinthians 2.16, at the top of page 16, but we already have the mind of Christ. With such a mind, you are well positioned to take charge of your life. Also, you have the power of the greater one indwelling in you. Remember the words of 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 which tells you this, that's 1 John 4, 4. You are of God, little children, and you have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Remember, there's no evil, no problem or challenge facing you that is greater than Father God who dwells within you. You are told in the word, in the Bible, that you have the full power of the Godhead, I say behind you, but it's really in you to assist you in taking charge of your life. Believe it, receive it, act on this truth. Now, I want to take just two more minutes to end this message with a poem that was written, such a moving poem, and most of you have heard it before, but it was written way back in 1875 by an individual who those many years ago took charge of his life under very difficult, challenging, and really almost impossible circumstances. The poem is Invictus, written by William Ernest Henley. It's a favorite poem of many people, and it's certainly a favorite poem of mine, but in order for you to understand what produced that poem, I'm going to give you some background, which you don't always hear, uh, about William Ernest Henley. He was born in 1849 in Gloucester, 
or Gloucester, England, depending on how you want to pronounce it, in a city in southwest England. For much of his young life was lived in poverty. He was like diagnosed with tuberculosis of the bone and a very, a very painful disease at a very young age. At age 24, one of his legs had to be amputated due to complications arising from the tuberculosis. So he was crippled by that disease. He was told that in time, the other leg would require a similar procedure of amputation. At age 25, Henley heard of a distinguished surgeon in, in Edinburgh, Scotland, it's Dr. Joseph Lister, who had been very successful in treating TB. In those days, TB was deadly, and TB of the bone was extremely painful. He became determined to go to Scotland for help. His local doctors were all against it his, to the trip, and his family was totally against it. But one evening, this is him beginning to take uh, control of his life. In the dead of night, Henley got up and began to make his way to Edinburgh by himself, hobbling on one leg. When he arrived, and I'm leaving something out, when he arrived, Dr. Lister took him as a patient. And as the doctor began to treat him, Henley lay on the flat of his back in the hospital for weeks in excruciating pain. Over time, the doctor was able to save that second leg. So it's out of that background of intense pain, physical incapacity, but a determined drive to take charge of his life, Henley wrote Invictus. Invictus is the Latin word for unconquerable. And I'm going to read this poem to you, and I'm going to close with that. Out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the failed clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond the pale of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Here you see that unyielding determination of a person like William Ernest Henley, who took charge of his life. I say this to you, in the midst of challenge, dire straits, and physical and financial strain, if you are able to say as Henley did, that I am the master of my faith and the captain of my soul, then you are truly ready to take charge of your life. Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 9.45 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Or join us for Bible study on Thursday evenings at our fellowship office, 470 7th Avenue on the 6th floor, right in Herald Square. Thanks again for listening. And remember, walk by faith, not by sight.